Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst. With me to discuss the implication of the government's controversial plans to scrap thousands of EU laws by the end of 2023 is our political editor, Adam Payne. We're also joined by Labour peer Baroness Jenny Chapman, Shadow Minister of State at the Cabinet Office and a former Shadow Brexit Minister, who's also Keir Starmer's political director, who has responsibility for Brexit within her party. Also joining us is Jonathan Jones Casey, a leading barrister who was Treasury Solicitor and Permanent Secretary of the Government Legal Department for six years until he resigned over plans to override parts of the Brexit deal in Northern Ireland in 2020. So I'm going to start with you, Adam. We're going to talk about the EU Retained Law Bill. First of all, what exactly is the EU Retained Law Bill? Where exactly are we at with this piece of legislation? It's cleared its commons hurdles for the moment and is off to the House of Lords. I think it's going to be back in the House of Lords maybe at the start of next month. Just explain kind of what that legislation is and what it's going to mean. Yes, it's a very complex piece of legislation, I guess, for people who aren't, you know, enormously familiar um, with sort of legal jargon and whatnot, but to try and boil it down into its simplest terms, a retained EU law bill. So when we left the European Union, we stopped being a member, obviously, but there were lots of laws still in our statute book derived from when we were EU members covering all sorts of things and workplace rights to um, product safety to aviation regulations, all sorts of stuff. And as part of delivering Brexit, successive Tory governments have been committed to eventually deciding what to do with all of that. EU law. Now, the plan to do that is set out in the retained EU law bill, which, as you said, is going through its journey in Parliament at the moment. Why it's contentious is that the government has given itself an arbitrary deadline of completing this task by the end of the year. Now, when you speak to people in Whitehall, um, Jonathan, who's with us today, I discussed it with him a few weeks ago, about the nature of this task, the scale of the task, Everyone agrees it's an enormous mm. challenge. Because we don't actually know how many, the government will really say how many pieces of legislation. We know it's in the thousands, but we're not sure how well, many exactly yeah, are. Yeah, we? we asked Number 10 about this last week, if they had a number which we can report as journalists, and they wouldn't put a number on it. The estimate's around 4,000. Right. Um, and it's a high volume task. It's going to require lots of work of civil servants at a time when they're obviously dealing with quite a lot of other stuff. At the moment, the Prime Minister is determined to deliver this um, deadline. Ministers across Whitehall have been tasked with deciding which EU laws they'd either like to keep, they'd like to amend, or scrap. Yeah. And essentially, Alan, at the end of the year, what we call a sunset clause will take effect, and any laws that ministers have decided they don't want to either keep in their current form or keep in an amended form will be done away with. Yep. Why has this got people nervous? Well, there are legal experts like Jonathan who say that this is just a really bad way of making law. It doesn't make sense. It's driven by politics. And perhaps we'll come on to the role of the ERG and uh, pressures on soon so like he's delivering Brexit. But also there are various figures in the world of business. I spoke to one this week, Tony Danker of the CBI, who said that you've got sectors, industries who are going to be impacted by any change in a country's regulatory system, not knowing what rules they're going to have to follow on January 1st. So it's almost like from reporting Brexit for many years, Alan, we are very accustomed to Brexit cliff edges, Brexit deadlines. Yep. And this is very much one of them. Yep. Um, it passed through the Commons, as you said, it's on its way to the House of Lords. Peers are expected to amend this bill heavily. I, I presume Jenny will, will be able to speak to that. So, you know, 
Brexit's not done. <laughs> it's still very much going on. Yeah. And this is, while it's, you know, may feel like a boring, very technical piece of legislation, it is a highly consequential piece of legislation. Yeah, we'll, we'll come on to kind of how it's going to impact. But but Jenny, it's obviously going to the House of Lords. You're in charge of kind of Labour's policy where in the upper chamber where you, where you sit. What kind of changes do you want to see? There was, in the Commons, there was a, an amendment by the Labour MP, Stella Creasy, which fell, but it had lots of support from Conservative MPs, even those who are quite pro-Brexit, who, who wanted to give power to the Commons, to, to MPs, to look at these legislation rather than just have it in the hands of, of Whitehall. And you hear from, from Brexiteers who say that the idea of Brexit was to take power back from Brussels to give it to Westminster, not to give it to Whitehall. Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say, I suppose, from our point of view is we don't see this as a Brexit row anymore. This, this, this what we're talking about is how we treat what is now UK law. Yeah. It does have a special status, so we call it retained EU law, which was the kind of fudge that was done um, as we left the EU because there were lots of pieces of lots of rules and regulations that we were be, we were complying with because we were members of the EU that we could either continue to to do or not and decisions needed to be made there wasn't time to make all those decisions at that time so it was given this sort of special status but you know in there you've got things that affect the aviation industry um building site safety there's so much there as adam said there's about 4000 we think uh pieces of legislation and some of it and we don't mind this at all you know some of it we might not want to keep anymore yeah um but some of it we do but what we're saying is you've at least got to know what it is you're getting rid of so it's more of a process point from our point of view um we don't think the government has got the attention span the capacity the resources to look at 4000 pieces of legislation in the way that it should just to take the example of some of the environmental rules you've got organizations like the RSPB the national trust um, surface for sewage, you know, all getting together saying we're really worried about this because if you get rid of all these environmental rules, um, you're going to do potentially serious damage um, to our environment and you don't even know you've done it. Right. Um, so it's not, we're, we're all for a decision being made on these pieces of legislation and that happens week in, week out anyway. So we're not against that, but we just don't like the way the government's going about it. Is it also sort of to do the time frame? As, as Adam said, it's a, it's a cliff edge, this sunset yeah. at the end of this year. Yeah. Is that what you want to look at, maybe amending it so that it doesn't have this, in one sense, arbitrary a yeah. deadline for the end of this year? So I've got the bill in front of me. Carry it with me everywhere. Excellent. No, I don't really. But um, <laughs> the first, you know, the first line of clause one is um, the following are revoked at the end of 2023. EU-derived subordinate legislation retained direct EU legislation. Now, that's cut and dried. That is it. That is what a sunset clause does. Yeah. It gets rid of it. Now, so the work's not done by by then, by December thirty first. It you know it goes yeah. Off anyway. So the work, so the work isn't going to get done. You right. know, the consultation with different bodies. You know, working out what it means to take away some of these rules on um, you know building sites is a really good example. You know, what does that look like? Are we happy with that? If we put other measures in place to replace the regulations that we might be getting rid of. You know, it's important and this affects people's sort of daily lives. We're not saying we shouldn't consider it. We're not saying we shouldn't put these things into UK law, you know, proper, but we need to do it in the right way to avoid mistakes that we might regret. Yeah. Jonathan, bringing you in on this, obviously, what's your kind of view of this? You've been inside the government machinery about how this legislation is done. 
I mean, firstly, what do you make of the kind of the time frame and and around that, what do you think the changes that the government should be looking to make to make sure that this doesn't that this goes well rather than, than badly, I suppose? Yeah, well, I think the time frame is is absurd, frankly. The idea that this exercise can be meaningfully completed in you know at the end of January. And as things stand, we still have no idea from the government about what actual areas of law it might want to keep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, some reassurance could be provided if the government were now to say, of this X thousand, the following we've decided we will keep. That would provide reassurance. And then we could have a debate about the rest. But that's not happening. So as things stand, we have no idea uh, which of these thousands of laws might end up being kept and which will change, and if they're going to change, how, and which will fall away altogether. So I think the timescale is is hopeless. Um, so I agree with Jenny, this is not now about the merits of Brexit. This is about how we make law in this country for ourselves. And you know, we are all going to agree that the government can now, if it wants to, bring forward proposals to amend any of these laws it wants. But it should do that. If you're going to do that, you do it in a way that it involves proper process of developing the policy and you consult the affected sectors and so on. And you give time for Parliament to debate it and for businesses and citizens to prepare. And the bill doesn't do any of those things. So the, the process and the time, I agree, are, are, are all wrong. And I would say the, base, the basic problem with this bill is that it is using legislation to make a kind of symbolic mm. presentational political point, which is everything that came out of the EU, EU is deemed to be bad uh, and we should get rid of it. Despite the fact that us as members were probably involved in drafting some yeah. legislation. Uh, well. So, so yeah, much of this legislation the, the UK would have promoted or supported. Some of it probably is bad and should be changed. But the default position under the bill, Jenny's read out that provision, default position is that all this legislation will fall away. So that's the kind of symbolic point that's being made by this bill. And it overlooks the fact that legislation is not about making symbolic points. It's about the rules that affect real life for citizens and businesses. And I come back to the point that as things stand, no business, no citizen, nobody who cares about uh, product safety or the environment can know what government's position is on any of this, how the rules are going to change. And that seems to me to be a very bad way of, of making the law. Just to comment on, on Jonathan's point about symbolism, it was put to me um, earlier this week by someone who's familiar with, with what's going on there with this conversation within government. And they're put to me a theory that the government is using the retained EU law bill as a bit of red meat, a bit of Brexit red meat, a bit of mm. symbolism, while elsewhere it prepares to do a deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol which is probably going to involve some sort of concession somewhere yeah and indeed this hasn't been hugely picked up but in Nor at Northern Irish ports so what are they Belfast, Larn, Warren Point they've actually resumed the construction border control post to carry out checks um so the symbolism stuff I think is really important and we have to remember that Rishi Sunak despite despite campaigning and voting for leave in 2016 has really struggled for whatever reason to convince his colleagues that he's truly on board that he's mm. truly one of them unlike Liz Truss who campaigned for a man and then actually quite successfully 
Um, mm. Sort of re- yeah, We had a strange year last year. Up was down, yeah. uh, left was right. And yeah, because yeah. of that, I think Rishi Sunak has felt like he's always been on the back foot yeah. when it comes to the question of Brexit and the Tory party. It felt like that during the leadership contest of this summer, which feels like an age ago now, but whenever Brexit came up, he didn't seem completely comfortable talking about it in the same way that Liz, Liz Truss was. Um, so it's been put to me that this piece of legislation is the government's way, his way of saying, look, come on, guys, I'm a Brexiteer. Yeah. Look at well, this. From the government's point of view, obviously, it you know, you don't put a deadline on things. These things go on forever. We're already six and a half years on from the referendum. You know, it's, it's going to be a long time to get there. They have to put this kind of deadline on to be able to, to get there. And it does offer opportunities. There are things, you know, that the government thinks that it's right to remove the EU's influence, um, you know, I wondered what what Labour kind of made of that. Do you think? Do you understand that from that point of view, the government has to put some date on it, otherwise these things will just drag on and on and on. Hey, crack on! You know what I mean? Like we do what we call statutory in- instruments, which is sort of like small committees looking at little bits of law every week. You know, and it's often it'll be a piece of retained EU law, and we will have a discussion about it. Um, there might be a vote on it, and a decision will get made. We do it all the time, and so we should. You know, mm. that is how it ought to be. And when there are things where there needs to be consultation, that needs to be done and it needs to be done well because this should not be getting done for the benefit of Rishi Sunak trying to look hard to his colleagues in parliament. And that's what it is. You know, he's starting to look like a very, very weak prime minister to the public and certainly to his own MPs. He needs to show that he can stand firm on something. And I think this is the something that he has picked. As Adam said, he is you know, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill has disappeared. Um, things like the schools bill were dropped. You know, there isn't a, a coherent programme of government here. So he is trying to use this in order to look strong. It will fail because things are going to go wrong with this. You know, there are pieces of legislation that are going to get dropped and someone's going to only find out when somebody else goes to court yeah. and it all gets into a horrible yeah, mess. Yeah, this is what I was going to ask you, was, was that the thousands of legislation, I suppose the issue that a lot of people is... is potential unintended consequences of all of this. I wondered if you'd looked at some of the stuff, what you you kind of saw these kind of potential pitfalls for a a bill which wipes the slate of of thousands of pieces of legislation. Well, I mean, there are loads of pitfalls with it. That's the problem. I mean, going back to this point about symbolism, one of the first things Rishi Sunak did was film himself feeding supposedly EU laws into a shredder. You know, so if that's not <laughs> symbolic... I forgot about that. Yes. Yeah. He said he'd so, do it in 100 days, didn't he? <laughs> so so um, this is the background. And, and some of the rhetoric from people like Jacob Rees-Mogg has been around, you know, getting rid of all this awful EU law and replacing it with proper British law. Yeah. I mean, this is baloney. This is, this is not how you make law. What matters is what the law actually says. And we still have no idea about that, as I say. Not so that, the government. So, and, and the government is not giving us any clue, even as the bill goes through the Commons. So, um, so the pitfalls are well, the ones we've already touched on. That people just don't know what the law will be, um, and that's that's very bad for let's look at business confidence, for example, how businesses plan and how investors decide where they want to invest. All of that is thrown into uncertainty. Yeah. Um, you then, I'd have thought, got a. I'd have thought an unnecessary political row around any any sector or any pressure group that's affected by EU law can now say there's a risk of all these rights being um, thrown away, whether it's employment law or the environment. Now, I don't know whether that is the government's policy or not, and nobody does. 
So you've got a political problem that arises from that uncertainty, that you, you have a kind of political row in a vacuum because nobody knows what the effect will be. Um, and then there is the risk that particular bits of law will fall away by accident because they're missed. So we, we, we've been told that you know, the civil service will be doing its best. I was a government lawyer for many years. Um, it may or may not have identified all these thousands of bits of law. But if something's missed, and that must be a risk, yeah. that will, the consequence of this bill is that you'll just have a gap in the law. It will automatically expire at the end of 2023. And then who knows what will happen? It may be that the government has to, to scrabble around and, and produce a fix. But in the meantime, you've got all that uncertainty that but as you say that's not that. exactly the the best way to make legislation in, in that in that fashion have things falling having gaps in the law then having to scrabble around to fix them it doesn't sound like those through a completely self-imposed deadline that's mm. the point yeah um th- i mean and there 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 are many other risks but those are those are the real the real ones from my point of view as a lawyer um of course governments and parliament can change the law but you expect that to happen in an orderly way that gives people reasonable notice of what's going to happen allows for a proper debate about it yeah um i would say ideally proper consultation if you're making changes on this scale and the bill doesn't allow for any of that adam you uh, talked about there about business confidence you're at the mm. cbi uh, conference this week um tony danker from that group said that the the e-retain law bill was creating huge uncertainty for for uk firms can you just tell us a bit about the mood among businesses you spoke to spoke to them there at that conference this week yeah so tony danker the cbi um chief he gave a sort of quite wide-ranging speech about the state of the economy um ahead of the spring budget and it was a pretty punchy speech really uh, I, I understand that it, um Downing Street wasn't best pleased with <laughs> with uh, what with what Tony said but uh, on the on the subject to the retained EU law bill he said that to to paraphrase at a time when we are trying to exit recession um this arbitrary deadline is just a needless um difficulty um for businesses I I asked him about the issue of migration and this um Obviously, a big part of the government's plans, which Mel Stride is working on, is this question of economic inactivity. How do you get people back into work? Um, and he made the point that that's great. We support that. In, but in the, in, the short, in the shorter term, there are sectors who have labor shortages and we should be looking at how we, um, how we potentially relax migration rules temporarily to help, to help out there. Um, but his, his general message was that the government wasn't being bold enough. It wasn't being big enough with its thinking, its economic thinking. You know, to help the country get out of the hole, um, it finds its it, it um, finds itself in. Well, the cabinet are away day today, down yes. the checkers to discuss all that. But we'll, we'll come on to that in a bit. Uh, Jenny, just come back to the, the the law. Then we talked a lot about arbitrary deadline, the difficulty of this deadline. Is that what you want to see change? Is that what you're going to be pushing for when it comes when the bill comes to the to the Lords to try and push to change? the date necessarily or or more the mechanism by which these laws come off the statute book. yeah i mean i'm afraid we are going to be looking at a very boring process row really <laughs> we love a boring process <laughs> but, well you d- you guys really do don't <laughs> yeah, you we do, yeah. don't we? this is why you're a superior podcast um, <laughs> but yes. i think you know every time you ask a government minister um do you intend to change um, say employment law um, there's a lot of concern particularly in the trade union movement about workers rights that could be affected they go oh no 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 not that one and we go, well, what, are you going to, what about these um, food safety standards? No, 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 we're not going to change those. We're not going to change the environment. So we think in the end, you'll say, well, what the hell are you doing this for? Yeah. The giveaway, um, which proves that they don't know what they're doing this for, other than to make a point about Rishi Sunak being, you know, tough, 
which he's not, um, is where they just keep on saying that um, any relevant national authority or minister may change by regulation this rule, they can revoke it, they can replace it, giving all the power to decide to be done later down the line. And that is, you know, that's a very, very shoddy way. That's kind of ministerial fiat, isn't it? Completely, yeah. So they're just giving themselves the power to think about this later, where these are, even retained law did go through some process because we had MEPs. There was a process um, in our parliament of deciding what to do about these laws. It wasn't a very good process, but it was there. This, this is worse than any kind of um, taking edicts from Brussels. This this is something where your MPs are going to have virtually no say in this and the people affected by this law will have no say. And that, you know, the, the, what this leads to is you know, a very, very poor way of making regulation. Jonathan, I have a legal question. Oh dear. He charges by the hour. Yeah. I have not, I've not been given um, notice of this. Um, <laughs> and this is a glimpse in, into me not being, you know, the law not being my main area of expertise. But so any, any EU laws that are retained under this bill and survive the sunset clause, if a future government decided, actually, we do want to get rid of that, how would we do that? Well, it would do it by bringing forward a bill. Yeah. By primary legislation. That's normally how you change the law. So, because I've been entertaining a theory that perhaps, let's say, if your base, which I understand is one of the most exposed departments Mm. to this, might get towards the end of the year and think, do you know what? This is far too much an ask. Let's just retain most of it. Yes. Because there is a clause that allows them to to take some stuff beyond. Let's just retain more. Let's take a safety first approach. Hope that. David Jones, me, he doesn't notice. Um, we'll just keep keep most of it, apart from the very obvious ones. Don't want to keep, and then we'll work, and then we can properly look at it at a future date. So, it, certainly, the bill allows allows the government to do that, and as I say, it could provide some reassurance by giving an indication of things it does want to keep. Yes, yeah. but it's not. Um, so, but it takes a po- as the bill stands, it takes a positive decision by ministers to keep any of this stuff after the end of twenty twenty three. Um, and separately, there is also a power to extend the deadline. So you can just prolong the agony a bit and give yourself a bit more time. Uh, if, if, if it wouldn't be Brexit without an extending, no, no. An extending deadline. Well, I it? think we have to assume one way or another this will be going on for some time to come. But, um, but I mean, what I would, what I'd be doing, I wouldn't start from here, obviously, with this bill, which I think is is just a very poor way of making the law. As I've said, I would be getting rid of the deadline for a start, um, which is, is uh, absurdly short and doesn't give time for any of the good things to happen that we've discussed, which is you know, consultation, proper parliamentary scrutiny, um, and so on. Um, so if the government is intent on keeping these kind of powers, A, it shouldn't have to exercise them in the space of 11 months. And secondly, there should be some proper scope, A, for consultation with affected bodies and sectors. And I think going back to Jenny's point, um, proper scrutiny um, in Parliament um, so that you don't get these ministerial regulations rushed through with minimum opportunity to consider them um, and, in most cases, no debate, no meaningful debate. Uh, on our you, Jenny, you mentioned the, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. It's stuck in the Lord's report stage at the moment. Jonathan, you, you, you signalled some 
happiness that it doesn't seem to be to be going anywhere. You obviously you, you resign over these those famous uh, plans to break international law in a very specific and limited way. What, what are your thoughts on on this? The bill, where it is now, and whether there is going to be a, a breakthrough ahead of this, obviously another, uh, perhaps some might say arbitrary date of the of the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement um, later this year. Well, it does seem to have stalled, um, and you, um, Adam, may be right that this is part of a kind of trade off that the the government continued continuing to press on with the retained EU law bill may be part of some calculation that if it does that, it will get a bit of slack over. The protocol, I don't know. But either way, I think the, the protocol bill is, 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 for different reasons, a very bad bill mm. because it does, it, I, I have no doubt, it does break international law and that's how it would be seen by the EU. So it's, this is undoubtedly a hostile act as far as the EU is concerned. Um, and I think it is unlawful. Uh, so if it's being dropped, then I think that is itself a good thing. Um, if it's being dropped as part of a, as we've heard, you know, scope for some softening, some yeah. a negotiated change to the protocol, then again, good, because that was always going to be the way, if the protocol is deemed not to be working, then the way you get changes to an international agreement is by negotiation. And that's, you know, that's obviously very hard when you're trying to renegotiate an agreement you've entered into only a couple of years ago. Nonetheless, that's how you get changes. You don't get changes by threatening unilateral action and breaking international law. So if quietly behind the scenes, the negotiations are getting somewhere and the bill can be dropped, then that can only be a good thing, yeah. I thought. Jenny, you, Adam mentioned those ports in Northern Ireland. I know you were there with Peter Kyle and David Lammy from Labour's front bench. I don't know what you've made of the kind of the, the current situation around the protocol and any changes ahead of this April deadline. I think things have shifted quite a lot actually over the last year about the protocol. It started from a situation where, you know, one camp wanted it scrapped, the others said, no, 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 we're going to implement this to the letter. And I think it's good that um, the UK government is now sort of in more in negotiation yeah. mode. Um, it's very interesting to hear um, the Taoiseach say last week that yeah. he felt that the attitude of the unionist community um, had not been taken mm. adequately into account. His, his kind of softening, I suppose, signals the other countries yes. in the EU to maybe to, to look to soften yeah. as well, right? So that I think is is positive. Um, what we keep getting is, oh, we've had a really nice meeting. We're all getting on really well, but actually, nothing of substance is coming out of it. it sounds like the strike, the strike talks as well, isn't well, it? Well, yeah. I mean, well, it's, it's maybe better than that, but. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, the mood music is great, but you know, ev the protocol is everything. Like, we're not going to get anything out of the EU in terms of the veterinary agreement we want, Horizon, you know, forget it. Until this protocol issue is, is resolved, we're not getting anywhere. And the same with the Americans. You know, we want to do a trade deal with the US. Biden's made it really clear that he sees um, the government's approach up to now on the protocol to be detrimental um, to that. So this really does need to be resolved. The only way you've ever been able to resolve anything when it comes to Northern Ireland is by being present and being there and putting a lot of political capital behind it. You don't see that sufficiently um, from this government. It, you know, it, it, it really is going to need the Prime Minister, I think, to personally get himself involved and be on the ground. Um, you know, so things are looking better than they were. But I think we've got an awful long way to go. 
Yeah, just on is is Jenny's made the point that when you when I speak to people on both sides about how it's all going, it's all very come by our like, oh we, we get on now. It's great. Like, Handles. Yeah, it's all very trust levels are high. Yeah. It's all very um convivial. And I must I must say actually, I spoke to a couple of diplomats last week and James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, was getting a lot of praise for just his approach to dealing with people. Apparently he's played a big part in improving relations and actually Jenny touched upon the she made the point that um while the mood music's splendid we haven't really had anything of substance I think that the fact it is so quiet and there are fewer leaks in regards to what's being discussed in the past has been a sign that negotiations are in a good place are we entering the, t- the well, tunnel the government hates the words the tunnel so even if we were in a tunnel they wouldn't tell us <laughs> so like a secret tunnel yeah but but someone very closely some very close to the talks told me last week that if this isn't a tunnel i don't know what is because <laughs> right. they are as far as i'm aware they're negotiating every day including over weekends yeah and that's when we know the eu serious because they take their yeah, yeah. time off very seriously um a working time directive we'll have to see if that stays <laughs> on the books after the eu retain law bill goes i suppose yeah so but obviously look let's say there is a deal yeah in the next um couple of months um the ERG will, I imagine, be unhappy about it, but they've sort of dwindled in number and in clout, I think, within the Tory party. And Keir Starmer um, indicated recently that the Tory party can rely on Labour support in, in regards to dealing with this issue. So the CNET doesn't really have to worry about the ERG in a parliamentary sense, numerically. The million-pound question, of course, is the DUP. Jeffrey Donaldson, what does he do, particularly in this context of local elections in May coming up? Yeah. Um, he's got his seven asks, which I think, I mean, it's un- it's very unlikely that whatever's agreed is going to deliver on all of those seven asks. And the ECJ in particular is a very thorny issue and a difficult one to fudge. Um, so let's see. But it does sound, I mean, take a step back. Where we are now on the protocol is markedly more encouraging than we were. Yeah, this time know, last year, definitely. This yeah. time, or even this time, like three or four months ago. Yeah. So just before we wrap up, then one of the big stories this week is obviously about the Conservative uh, chair, Nadim Zahawi, and questions over his tax affairs and, and again, his position, um, you know, like Richard Sunak's away at this cabinet away there down at Chequers, and he wants to be talking about a government reset and economic policy ahead of the budget. But unfortunately, this is the question that's dogged them. Adam, just where are we currently? This is Thursday morning. Where are we with the Zahawi story at the moment? It's it's good to use those time indicators, isn't it? Because we've we've been hostage to fortune in the past where we haven't done that, and then something, and then our podcast expires quite quickly. Yeah. Um, where are we right now? Deem Sahawi is being investigated um, by the new ethics advisor. It's his first first uh, job, I think. I'm glad you said ethics and not independent ethics advisor because it really annoys mm. me when the prime minister says independent when this person is appointed by the prime minister yeah. can only initiate investigations under the prime minister's orders and then their results can be ignored by the prime minister. So the yeah. word independent needs to be dropped. I was keen to avoid a Twitter pile on that. Yeah, yeah. So that. we'll just say ethics investigator. Yes. Uh, um, ethics advisor, sorry. So where, so that, you know, so what's happened? Um, Deems original position was that the settlement he reached with HMRC had all been addressed. Yeah. Case clause, nothing to see here, nothing to add. The PM in last week's PMQs, essentially double down on that saying i'm happy with what i've heard let's move on over the weekend more reports came out i believe it was the guardian 
who reported that this um, settlement was reached when he was while he was chancellor. And there was a penalty involved. And a penalty involved in, to the tune of uh, lots of more money than I have. Yep, about <laughs> five million total. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And was it on Monday the prime minister announced that he was commissioning an investigation? Uh, we're expecting this hasn't been said sort of on the record, but we're expecting this investigation to be completed in the next two to three weeks. Yeah. In the meantime, Nadim Zahawi continues as Tory party chair, a decision which has um, left some Tory MPs I've spoken to this week feeling a bit exasperated, think he's a distraction, particularly when, you know, as Tory party chair, you're a, you're a public media facing person, you're meant to represent the party. Yeah, he's not going to do much broadcast work. So, you know, it looks like for now he's going to stay on unless there are some more damaging reports, further revelations in the next few days and the temperature rises again and perhaps he decides, like Williamson did those months ago, I'm becoming too much of a distraction here. Yeah. If that doesn't happen, we'll have to wait for the findings of this um, report. But clearly, it's annoying for Rishi, well, it's annoying for Rishi in like a number of ways. One, his whole USP is accountability, integrity, all these very positive abstract nouns. And... Um, doesn't really square with that. And secondly, yeah. he really wants to talk about policy yeah. and his pledges. And I was at the post PMQ's lobby briefing this week, and I think we spent 45 minutes talking about Nadim Zahawi <laughs> and maybe 10 or 15 talking about other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Jenny, obviously, Labour went in on, uh, Kirstama went in on, on the Zahawi stuff towards the end of Prime Minister's questions. What's Labour's position on it? And, and are you surprised, I suppose, that, that Sunak, having said all this stuff, especially when he entered Downing Street, he said it was going to be about accountability, that, that he hasn't taken kind of the action? He, he said it would be politically expedient to have done so. Perhaps, you know, it's surprising that he didn't go for that decision. And, and what do you kind of make of the reason that he hasn't so far? I think it is odd. You know, I, I fully expected Nadim Zahawi to be sacked on Monday or to resign on Monday. Then I thought, oh, well, you know, Wednesday mornings are quite popular moments to throw you throw in the towel for reasons we can all imagine. Um, and it hasn't happened. And again, I think this is, it does come back to whether or not this job is a bit big for Rishi Sunak, because he just doesn't seem to want to take these, you know, these calls. They're not even that big decisions, really. This is, I think, more and more people seem to be coming to the view that um, Zahawi is going to have to go. Um, and it's just surely it's better for a prime minister who's got the you know a big job um, ahead of him in terms of the economy and all of these other issues that he should be dealing with to have this going on. It's got to be a distraction, and I, I think it's it's bewildering really why yeah, he doesn't just deal with it. Getting the barnacles off the boat, and this is a it's a hell of a barnacle, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. I mean, you know, he's <laughs> a big he's a big lad. Did he? <laughs> Jonathan, <laughs> if you were still offering uh, you know legal advice to to the government, what would be your advice about about Zahawi? I suppose. Well, and this is uh, ultimately a political judgment, yeah. not a legal one. But I mean, as we've said, um, I mean, it's already a, a big distraction. Um, uh, Sunak coming in. Uh, set off with this great commitment to integrity and so on, as we've said, thereby um, one assumes wanting to clear the decks after the scandals of the Johnson era and so on. So for this to be happening in his first few months is a massive distraction. It took him a while to appoint a new ethics advisor, and he hasn't given him any more power. So as you've said, he's not truly independent. He doesn't have any of the powers to start investigations and so on that um, a number of... Uh, people have suggested he should have done. So the effect is, therefore, there's already a question mark over the Sunak premiership's commitment to standards. So, I mean, 
now there is an investigation, I suppose he ha- either has to wait for it to report yeah. or 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 for Zahabi to make his own decision and go. Yeah. But everybody must be hoping that happens sooner rather than later. Otherwise, it will just continue to be yeah, a big I, I, distraction. I think the issue, I suppose, is that I've spoken to a couple of MPs about this, saying that it's not necessarily about the outcome of this investigation because if, if, fans, if it finds that he's not broken the ministerial code, that doesn't end the questions over what happened around this, this tax bill, how he ended up not paying... £3.7 million and why he had to pay a penalty that it sort of doesn't pass the sniff test. It does it's not gonna it doesn't smell right to the outside mm. world. And that and this investigation will not change that. So essentially Sunak has not really bought himself a lot of time. Yeah, and just um I think earlier, Jonathan, in the context of the retained EU law bill, uh talked about prolonging the agony. And that seems to be the strategy of the government in regards to the Dean Zahawi. It's um that is a concern of Tory MPs. It's just gonna linger, it's it doesn't smell right. And I think for, for Sunak as well. One of his potential vulnerabilities is his 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 large amounts of wealth mm. and the claim that he he is not hugely in touch with. Um, yeah, it's already, bleed, it's already bleeding into that. Yeah, and, his own and any and a story. Well. Yeah, and a story like this clearly is going to fuel that sort of narrative, and it's just well, it's just massively unhelpful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Just let's not forget that. Um, Dominic Raab, the Deputy Prime Minister, is also under investigation for what apparently now are multiple um, complaints of bullying. Um, so uh, a very, very senior minister, uh, also under investigation. Um, it, it, is, it must just be a very big distraction. A, undermining Sunak's commitment to integrity and standards and so on. And, and B, just distracting from you know, debates, going back to our discussion of the retained EU law bill, actually, what we should really be talking about is what are the policies now we're out of the EU for the economy, for regulation, for citizens. Uh, and all of this is a complete distraction from that, I'd have thought. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories in Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven daily newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right corner of the website. Thanks to my brilliant guests, Baroness Chapman and Sir Jonathan Jones, and to my colleague Adam Payne. Our editor today was Laura Silva. Thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>